Okay, welcome everybody to uh, the second event of uh, this year's World Stage Student Alumni uh, Lecture Series, uh, which is a series of lectures in which we bring uh, prominent LSE alumni and um, set them up in conversation with um, two current students, one undergraduate, one postgraduate, uh, to talk about some contemporary um, issues. Uh, and I'm delighted to see that there's a, a number of you here. Um, it's, a, it's a classic LSE evening in terms of the competition for um, guest speakers. So we have this event, uh, there's Alex Salmon uh, across the hallway, and uh, in the old theater, uh, there's the Maonomics talk, and I think there's something at Hong Kong theater, and there's something else. So it's the classic LSE um, uh, uh, evening in terms of the possibilities. Um, so one of the things we'd like to do is just get a sense of who's here in terms of um, the different kinds of undergraduate, postgraduate degree programs. Um, so how many people here are first year LSE undergraduate, second year undergraduates who are doing LSE 100? One, two, okay. Uh, and how many of you are undergraduate students full stop? One, two, three, okay. How many are postgraduates? Okay, I was beginning to think maybe people just didn't actually know. <laughs> how many people are staff? And how many people are outside guests? Ah, there you go. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. Um, tonight we've got a, um, a really interesting uh, program. Um, and I want to kick things off with just a couple of brief comments. The interesting thing about the LSE is that when you look at the LSE website, when we do recruitment stuff, you probably heard this as a spiel when you were looking at coming to the LSE, is we advertise that the LSE is an international and cosmopolitan university. Um, and that means that we have students from about 150 countries here on the campus. Now, the interesting thing about cosmopolitanism is it has a multiplicity of meanings. Uh, in its minimalist form, it simply means it's a place where people of different kinds of backgrounds come together uh, living in a similar proximate close space. Uh, one could probably characterize as multiculturalism, but this is now a dirty word. Um, David Cameron, uh, for one, doesn't think it's a, a useful way of talking about things. But that notion of cosmopolitan is, um, in, in terms of the, the, the kind of thing, it's, it's a kind of salad bowl rather than a melting pot approach to people coming together. Um, in another version, it's, a, it's a, an approach to thinking about uh, the world in which um, our primary identities connected with our national citizenship is not seen as primary. Uh, that there's a sense of um, commonality that pulls us closer together than that. And uh, we see ourselves as citizens of the world, is kind of the, the classic phrase associated with cosmopolitan. Um, and the third and the kind of more maximalist uh, position uh, is that it, one that, that embraces the idea that we all belong to a single common community. Um, and that what underpins that community is our shared sense of being human. Uh, and there are various kinds of ways in which that gets cashed out in terms of its political, and ethical, and moral content. Um, each of these variations uh, about cosmopolitan um, importantly claim to embrace the idea of mutual respect uh, for our differences. Um, and each of them uh, entails uh, a, a confrontation with um, the identities that we have, the multiple identities that we have, and the sources of those identities, um, and the meaning that they give us uh, as individuals, but also as members of communities. Um, and in a sense, that's the theme for this evening's discussion, uh, is uh, how it is that we navigate um, those differences within a wider sense of um, a shared community, and that's an important issue here within the school. Um, and so the topic for this evening is, um, does culture matter? Um, and how. 
And we've got um, three splendid speakers, one of whom is not here, and I'll explain in a moment, but I'll introduce our other two. Uh, so sit here immediately on my left is uh, Rajiv Gupi, who's from Trinidad and Tobago and is doing the MSc in International Relations. So there's a bit of an uh, international relations bias here, you'll see in terms of the platform. Uh, a writer of uh, one of the largest newspapers uh, in uh, Trinidad and Tobago, uh, and writing on issues on uh, youth issues, social justice. Um, according to the biography I have here, uh, he was hoping to be a diplomat or trade negotiator, but he's got a place with Barclays. <laughs> but that's a stepping stone to his, his real ambitions. Um, further to my left, is Sharish Ajaz Khan, who is from Pakistan and is studying on the economic history with economics uh, program, uh, and has worked as an intern at the ILO, uh, the UNDP, and Morgan Stanley, so she's worked both sides of the, uh, the public-private divide, um, and been closely involved with uh, Model UN, uh, and is also a poet, uh, and uh, is hoping to get involved in uh, corporate uh, um, finance and save the world at the same time, which is an interesting uh, dilemma. The third speaker, who isn't here, but I'll nevertheless introduce him and explain, explain in the sense why he isn't here, is uh, Kurt Barley, who is a very close and very dear friend, uh, as well as a former colleague. So uh, Kurt uh, graduated from the LSE with an MSc in comparative uh, politics from the government department originally, uh, and then did his PhD in the international relations department back when I was um, a research student, which was very important. Um, uh, and then taught for a year in the department at LSE uh, before moving on to a career in journalism um, and particularly at the BBC. Uh, and uh, while working at the BBC, he's worked on a number of really high profile programs. So uh, on Newsnight, uh, the BBC News, the Today program, the Money program, uh, and here he is. Uh, and um, the reason that he was late was he was cutting a clip that's going out probably as he's sitting down here. So uh, the, uh, disproving the idea that you can't be in two places at the same time. Uh, Kurtz made uh, a number of documentaries alongside uh, his reporting work for the BBC on a wide range of uh, subjects, um, mostly focusing on uh, issues around um, social justice. Uh, he won Reporter of the Year Award uh, in 1996, and that was the first of many awards. Uh, he now has won more awards uh, from the Commission for Race Equality in the terms of its media awards than any other journalist uh, in the UK. Uh, and was recently awarded uh, the Justice Link Award by the UK Attorney General. Uh, so he's been working uh, at the BBC uh, as a special correspondent for London since 2001, uh, which means that you probably see him on the 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock, 10 o'clock, uh, uh, variety of packages. Um, uh, and uh, has also um, recently, for, for a while, been producing a blog on BBC Online, uh, which rather interestingly won the uh, Best Writer Award uh, in the Online Award, Online Media Award, uh, and then the BBC promptly decided it was going to cut it. Uh, so, um, so it's a great pleasure uh, to have the three of them here speaking. Uh, the format for the evening is that I'm going to turn over first uh, to Rajiv. Um, he's going to speak for about 10 minutes uh, and then going to turn over to Charisse and she's going to speak about 10 minutes uh, and then to Kurt um, who uh, as a result of his gravitas gets to speak for a bit longer um, uh, and then open it up for a question and answer. Uh, the other thing to mention is you've all been given a little card um, when you came in. Um, keep hold of that because I'll explain at the end of the evening uh, what that card is about and how you're going to make use of it. Uh, but without further ado, let me turn over to um, Rajiv to kick us off in terms of our discussion about um, those culture. Now. 
Okay, I get to go first, which is sort of bad, because as a social scientist, we usually are last and speak after the fact, but I'll try my best. Um, like, uh, I was introduced, I am from Trinidad and Tobago, I am in the MSc IR program, and I take a mix of courses that are a bit strange uh, to IR, but still, I think they're quite interesting. So, the topic this afternoon is, does culture matter? At first, I was struck by exactly how strange is this a question. I mean, everyone here will be like, yeah, obviously culture matters. Like, what, what are these people going to talk about? Uh, but then when you think about it, culture, just like those words like morals and values, uh, very difficult to define, very difficult to put a definition on, but yet we implicitly know what they are. So we can think about culture not only as those uh, heritage and uh, performative aspects of what one can see and touch, such as food, dress, religion, all those things are really lovely, but they're not exactly what culture is in itself. Culture in itself is a state of things and beings that can't be touched or seen. Everyone has a culture. Uh, it's a bit sad, and I would say a bit xenophobic, that a lot of people say, well, you know, uh, white people or Europeans don't have a culture. You people don't have a culture, which I think is, is wrong. Everyone has a culture, and uh, our culture is what makes us who we are. So, like I said, culture as being a state of being, a state of mind, then we can come back to the question, does culture matter? And when you think about it, culture does matter. Culture matters in how we present ourselves to people, how we are seen by people, how we are viewed by society, how we think about the world. Culture influences our worldviews. Culture influences the way we express ourselves, the way we relate to our environment. So on this question of does culture matter, we need to ask ourselves, is it that it matters that we present ourselves in a certain way, or is it that it matters that we are comfortable with ourselves? So my, the rest of my time will be dedicated to talking about culture and yourself, and presenting yourself and making the best at the LSE. So as was pointed out, when the LSE is being marketed, uh, you always hear these cliches of uh, global university, one time more countries than the UN, uh, multicultural, uh, all these ideas and all these, uh, you know, come and when you walk down Hogton Street or when you're in a lecture, you're in the UN. All these things are quite wonderful and they are what makes the LSE the LSE. When you think about it, uh, in this room right now there are people from many different countries, many different backgrounds, many different ideals, values and norms and my question would be that you need to ask yourself, how many of you have uh, taken advantage of this opportunity and gotten to know other people, have gotten to expand your horizons, have gotten to actually talk to these people and figure out, well, hey, this person is from a different culture, they have different backgrounds. Uh, in my experience here at the LSE, it's been wonderful. It's been absolutely amazing. Uh, being from Trinidad, I come uh, with a wonderful accent, which has uh, gotten me uh, lots of people come up to me and say, hey, you look Indian, but you have a lovely accent. It's like, where are you from? And I, I think that's wonderful. I think that's so nice. Uh, a lot of people sometimes may get annoyed when you're asked these questions. You know, you look a certain way, but... So when those situations arise, you, can, you have two options. 
It's either you choose to get annoyed or you see it as an opportunity to educate people and possibly make a new friend. So that's the thing about being at the LSE. You may be surrounded by lots of cultures, however, uh, I would hazard a guess that most people here will stay within their particular cultural groups, which in itself isn't wrong, but you're not making the best opportunity of being at the LSE. The thing about it is that culture is important. Everyone here who is an undergrad, who is in postgrad, which most people will be thinking about work. So to use the cliche is when you go out in this modern world of work, especially if you remain in Europe or you go to any of the metropolis cities, it is multicultural. You're going to be working with people from different backgrounds, from different ideas, from different values. And unlike a class where you can choose not to interact with them, in the world of work, you will have to interact with these people. You will have to learn to deal with these people. And it's better now to use the LSC as a, a training ground to develop your cultural sensitivity, to ask those questions, to think about how it is that you see yourself interacting with people. Because when you go out in the world of work, there is no uh, you know, litmus test, there is no, uh, you know, I will not work with you. It is all about group dynamics and globalization and multicultural interaction. So just to get back to, again, to tie into the initial question, culture does matter. Culture matters in the domestic sense, culture matters to your own self, culture in your friends, culture in work. Like I said, there are numerous stereotypes and misconceptions that most people have about others. There is, for anyone doing anthropology, there's always the anthropological other. We find this mystification of other people. And like I said, you can choose to continue with those misconceptions or you can choose to make that step and get to find out more. After Freshers' Week, most people will clam up back into themselves and pull away from making those friendships, from reaching out to people, which I think is a lost opportunity. Here at the LSE, you have the opportunity to have bragging rights. It's not many schools that people can say, I have friends from over a hundred different countries. That is a bragging right. You know, I, I knew this guy from Trinidad, or I know someone from Burkina Faso, or I know someone from, you know, Melanesia. You don't get these opportunities in many places, and when you do get the opportunity here, you must make uh, good, good use of it. So, I remember when I was consulting for, uh, to speak this afternoon, one of the uh, points that was brought up was to think about your time at the LSE and to think about the length of your graduate programs. Most graduate programs here are one year, which is a bit different if you came from the West, where there are two years. And I think that that's a great opportunity because most people would then in that one year have the opportunity to be cultural ambassadors for their particular countries. You have that one year to basically sell yourself and sell your culture and also learn from other cultures. In that way, you have this one year which is probably not going to be ever replicated in your life unless you go on to be BBC correspondent when it's extremely exciting. But most of us, we won't really have this opportunity again and it's necessary that you make good use of this time. So does culture matter? Culture matters a lot. And here at the LSE, it's, it's one of those things that you can't escape from. So if I had to uh, leave anything with you, it's that you try to overcome your misconceptions and stereotypes, that you try to be more embracing, that you try to talk to people, because 
most of us like to think of ourselves as, you know, cultured and worldly people, but it's very difficult and very few will make that transition to actually living this global life, to live this multicultural life. We usually stay within our peer groups and we don't take those opportunities to talk and interact with people, to understand different cultures and to expand our own. So I know I go a little bit fast and, and I'm sorry, but what I would like to say and, and to wrap up with is that when thinking about culture, don't only think about it as performative aspects of those things that can be seen and those things can be touched, you know, going to Chinese New Year or celebrating Eid or Diwali, those things are wonderful, but also think about culture as interacting with people and learning of how they see the world, of how things that may seem obvious or difficult to you are perceived differently by other people. Uh, thank you very much. Um, good evening, everyone. My name is Serish Ijaz, and I'd like to uh, answer the same question as believe that does culture matter? Um, it almost sounds like a trick question when you say it out loud. And the simple answer has to be yes, culture does matter. But once you strip the academic layers off the question, Culture is, simply put, a very awkward word. Uh, the anthropologists among us have some sort of a scientific process to think about culture, about one universal culture and several subcultures under it. But I'm an economic historian, which is more awkward than being an economist or a plain historian. So today, I will not try to do what anthropologists do and explain what culture is but use anecdotes to explain how that has shaped my uh, perception of identity and shaped my experience at the LSE. Three years ago, when I first walked on Houghton Street, if anyone had asked me who I was, my answer would be plain and simple, a Pakistani. Now, when I was asked to come and speak at this event, I actually had to very loyally revert to Google to answer what that meant First, I googled Pakistan, and for the first three pages, first I had these maps, pictures of these cricketing heroes, but then I had some nasty things like pictures of militants, uh, pictures of destruction caused by natural and man-made disasters, pictures of protesters burning things down. Basically, things which Pakistan represented to the rest of the world. Then I went on to Google Pakistani culture, and I saw pictures of uh, weddings, people with their hands beautifully henned, um, all sorts of things like truck art and Mughal architecture and Buddhist architecture in Pakistan. And that was in a very basic and generic way what Pakistani culture meant to me when I started my time at LSE. Um, 2009, it was my first time traveling abroad and it was in many ways very frightening. So I held on to the one thing which I thought represented culture and identity to me, which was my national dress, shalwar kameez. So through months of very, very fickle London weather, I would without fail be walking down Houghton Street in shalwar kameez, which in retrospect sounds both very bold and unreasonable. But back then, it was like almost a source of physical comfort to me. That's something which I had never really taken the time to think about was present with me at all times. And then my interactions with LSE's legendary uh, multicultural bodies. 
was always tempered with hesitation because they always had such difficult questions like um, some of them were political and there were things like what is the relationship in Pakistan between dictatorship and democracy what is going on with the war on terrorism there were other questions which were which at that time I thought were quite ignorant like is there electricity and roads in Pakistan um, but with each question I had to go back to my roots and and so as a result I started listening to so much more Urdu music we went back to all this poetry because I thought you know what this is who I am and this is my culture but I think even at that point in time, there was this one inherent conflict, which was not only cultural but religious, because at the time I was thinking, was I a Muslim first or was I a Pakistani first? And I think it's that very interesting clash of identities which we're all born with and which we all have to make peace with at some point in time, which really defines culture and identity as we see it. So, for example, the difference between being a Pakistani and being a Muslim is that Pakistanis like their wedding like loud and very colorful with singing and dancing and Muslims like simple ceremonies in mosques. Um, and it was almost ironic that I had to travel some 6,100 kilometers to realize this difference between culture and identity and get this sense of home. And even at that point, culture mattered as both a determining and a constraining force. But I was not very consciously thinking about those things back then. Um, interestingly, my first break from this existential crisis, if I'm to call it that, came in the form of a society which most of you probably ignore at LSE, which is the LSE Literature Society. Um, they had an open mic night, and I went there and I was reciting some of the things I had written. And at that point, in that one almost counterculture within Houghton Street of people who were, who were interacting regularly on the would-be financiers of the world, I found for the first time that I could relate to them because they wanted to know things beyond who was dying or where they were dying and, and who was secretly responsible for those things. They wanted to know more about the nation of 180 million in their resilience and their strength and their culture and the things they represented. And I think that was something which I held very dear at that point in time. And those, they asked me about things which make even like economic and mathematical sense. So like you had all these people in some part of the world who were optimizing their objective function subject to some constraint. I mean, it made sense about that time. But I think the most important thing I learned from the Literature Society, if there are any representatives of that here, is that there was this one silver thread which bound us all together. And that was something which, as part of my degree, I was not really feeling. So once I began to get comfortable with this rather controversial identity, I opened myself to the possibility of having multiple cultures and multiple identities. And I had always thought that culture was what I had bought, the stock I had bought from Pakistan, but it was actually a flow. So if I'm to borrow something from finance, it was almost like a derivative. And my, uh, my um, collective experiences were like the underlying asset. So, sorry about that. Um, <laughs> and then came along LSE 100, which only two people seem to have come from. But 
in a module in LSE 100, there was uh, Dr. Rita Astuti was leading uh, this. It was basically the same thing. She was asking the question, does culture matter? And we were basically looking at all the, the anthropological side of things and the economic historian side of things. But the reason I mentioned LSE 100 is not because of the academic underpinning, but because it introduced me to a whole new set of culture which I never really considered before, which was academic culture. And you really, if to really understand that, you need to put in opinionated lawyers and economists in one room and leave them to debate something which one of them thinks is relatively straightforward. So for example, when you put economists in a room and all they're thinking about is incentive effects and fixed costs and variable costs to something like intellectual property law, or you put in all these social scientists and you ask them to look at climate change while all they can think about is some concept of intertemporal equity and whatnot. I think it was probably at that point in time that I realized that there was this other greater culture within LSE. And each of them had their own uh, framework of thought, its own language, language, its own almost morals. And I think that was the true beauty of LSE 100 which I got, which again, I was not getting in any of my own undergrad courses. Um, by the time I went back home, summer of 2010, I was sure I was the same person who had left uh, September 2009, because I had viciously fought to retain that identity. I had held on to my national dress. I always put on too much eyeliner. I was sure I was the same person. <laughs> But people who had known me all my life said I had come back as someone completely different. And I could not understand how that had happened. How and at what point had I become this would-be investment banker, something which I had fought over that one year at LSE? How had I become this wannabe economic historian who, who really cared about institutions and comparative development. And when had all this hard-headed hard practicality, which is something only a first-year LSE student can have, when did that all creep into me? And, and then there were things beyond that. Like, for example, I'm from Pakistan, and some of my best friends were Indian. And when I went back home, there were people who were a little bit confused about that. But the only calls we had was over cricket. And that was about it. When I heard people talking about the rise of Asia, I was proud because Asia is home too, which was quite surprising. And then over time, I became this person who would want to go to Arab boat parties and poorly attend the Dhaka, who wanted to, uh, who would get excited by Secret Santa with all my crazy, crazy, incredible friends in Northumberland House, uh, who would, yes, go to salsa classes and belly dancing classes, and yes, enjoy hot pot with, during Chinese New Year. But I think in a very strange and uncanny way, I was actually becoming one of those international citizens, which you think is just very happy EU jargon for good states of the world. But it was something which I felt that I had to go all the way back to Pakistan to realize I had attained over that one year. So just to sum up, culture is its a powerful tool for human survival because of the sense of identity it lends you. And at the same time, it's very fluid and very, very fragile as well. 
because it constantly changes and exists only in our minds. LSE, with its mosaic of nationalities and cultures, then it's, it's integrated on one end, but it's also fragmented and atomized at the same time. Because for some people, these things are just statistics, so that multiculturalism just means all these people from all these countries who you just share the general space with. While for other people, it's all these people who you've practically grown up together with and whose houses you can easily crash no matter what part of the world you're traveling to. So, and as for me, like I've said, my personal experience of LSE's multiculturalism has been deeper and more profound than any of that because it has forced me to reconsider some of my most, my most basic paradigms of identity. And it has created a new one by creating doubt, by allowing me to question everything, and, and almost, almost starting an internal chaos. And I think that chaos and that ability to constantly ask questions is now my only culture. Thank you. I said to my daughter, I'm going to speak to the LSE, and she said, oh, that's where you went to university now, isn't it? They're very clever people there. I said, yes, maybe you as a young art student could provide me with an image which tells me and the audience a little bit about culture and identity. This is what she came up with, actually. It's actually quite good. She knocked it together in about two and a half minutes. Um, so at the centre, of course, you'll recognise me. Um, here you'll see the uh, Oni of Ife, who is the cultural leader in, of the Yoruba tribe in Nigeria, one of my roots. Here you'll see my grandfather, who was in the uh, British Navy during the Second World War. You'll see a great uncle who's what is the same generation of that who fought for the Kaiser in the First World War. Here you'll see my father who was raised in Nazi Germany as I'll explain to you in a bit. Here you'll see his father who was a bit more involved in the regime during 1930 to uh, 45 than we'd like to admit. Here you'll see my family in 1910 in in England. Here you'll see me as a young boy with my love of skiing, and here you'll see with my folks pointing home for my father in Nuremberg. So actually it wasn't a bad idea at trying to give me a sense of, yes, what am I going to talk about in terms of identity? Now, like everyone, my early life experiences shaped my cultural affinities as much as my cultural instincts, if you like, and um, in my case, it you can see from this, also channeled my instincts towards what I'll call cultural openness. Uh, in Britain, during the 1960s and 1970s, most people, it's quite a long time ago now, most people assumed that skin colour, for example, was a necessary determinant of cultural difference. So you'd have people come up to you and say, oh, well, um, where did you come from? What type of food do you eat? In fact, I even had somebody once, when I was about 17, touch my hair on my paper round and say, 
do you get your hair cut or does it break off at a certain point? So, as you can see, there are some kind of cultural misconceptions. Um, I actually spent a lot of time as a youngster, which used to be very frustrating, explaining to people that actually having a brown skin didn't necessarily make me altogether different from them for that reason, although um, I probably was a lot different from them for other reasons. So I learned very early on that identity is a very complicated business in a multicultural world. Part of what we've been talking here, the two earlier speakers have been talking about. I was, as I said, raised by an Anglo-Irish mother and a father who was raised in Nazi Germany under the watchful eye of my grandfather who was in the British Navy, who was a Londoner, a communist, and um, always mindful that um, he had to keep a tight rein on me. And dinner time in my house as a child was a constant reminder of the importance that importance in people's lives of cultural affinities and how this sense of cultural affinity conditions identity and how that difference needn't be conflictual. You know, my mother would always complain when she was getting hot under the collar about something that things were, this, remember this is the 1960s, not far from the Second World War, and she'd say, well, you know, things were so bad in the Second World War here in London during the Blitz, where the Germans, the, your people, looking across at my father, were dropping bombs on us, that we stopped getting bananas. And my father would just chuckle and say, well, you know, in 1930s Germany, we didn't even know what bananas were, because Nazi Germany had no African or Caribbean empire. So straight away there was all that kind of cultural affinity stuff going on. Um, and it, as a young child I had to wrestle with all that. Uh, and it shapes your perspective on the world and it helps you understand that cultural perspective can actually offer a genuine insight into the way others see the world. It also made me of course uh, uh, aware of how cultural clashes, often at the very heart of conflict. We used to constantly have debates about the, the Second World War and how those cultural clashes shaped that tumultuous conflict. I think, you know, throughout our lives, and obviously I'm a lot older than most of the people in this room, not all, I can, I can say, but uh, we retain the capacity to amend our sense of identity, and it's interesting to hear you say that you, you did it within the space of 12 months, more or less, um, and you recognise that, and, and cultural shift as we go through life can play a very important part in that sense of identity. When I came to the LSE in 1984, I was actually from London, I had raised in London, I was surprised to find myself in, a, in my home city in a place where I felt culturally adrift. A little bit about what you were saying, suddenly I was amidst all these people who I had felt I had initially no common ground with. You know, I was a working class kid, um, there was a complete absence of ethnic minorities, there weren't any in my lectures, there weren't any in, the, in, my, in my seminars, there weren't any in the LSE building as far as I could see. There were other black people here of course, most of them were African sons of diplomats and daughters of diplomats, but that was a slightly different thing. But I was also introduced to this fierce competitive um, culture of academic excellence where we sought to broaden our knowledge and in some ways cultural exchange, although even in our day there was a little bit of 
tension and resistance towards reaching out to those people who are from a long, long way away. But that breaks down after a while, as I'm sure you've all found. Uh, and, you know, sometimes we break that cultural exchange down in lectures, more often in the three tons. I don't know if it's still called the three tons. And, of course, when you became really a lot more serious, normally when you got to postgraduate, you gravitate to the uh, Beaver's Retreat upstairs. Um, but that was my first experience, if you like, in life of serious cultural shift. Um, notwithstanding the fact that, of course, I was already aware that culture and the clashes of culture and negotiating between culture was part of my DNA, if you like, with the, the conversations we used to have at home. So when I was asked if I'd come and talk about culture, it was obvious to me that although it's never been explicitly a part of my research method, because I wasn't a sociologist and I wasn't an anthropologist, I was a as a political scientist, if you like, doing international relations. Um, understanding culture in my professional life has very much been at the heart of understanding the causes of things. And I use that advisedly because, of course, that's what our motto is at the LSE, to understand the causes of things. So it was, it's right when I'm looking back, I'm saying, that's right at the heart, this idea of culture and what I make of it, that it helps me understand the causes of things as a journalist. And also, the other famous phrase associated with the, with the LSE is, of course, Karl Popper's um, The Open Society. And I've always aspired, and uh, when I was a very young student here, Karl Popper used to drift in and out every so often. He was an emeritus professor there. And I was very impressed with this idea. Here was this man who came from Vienna, um, war-torn Europe, and came here and, and wanted to champion this idea of the open society. And I've always kept that quite close to my way of thinking about what my job is about. Um, and often audiences actually tell me that when they've watched uh, my work, not a particular news report, they won't say a particular news report, but the body of work over years, they say to me, that, you know, it's the cultural insight that you often have that's the most impactful part of your, of your output. So it's clearly something people value. It's clearly something I value too. Um, so... Preparing for this talk, I said to myself, well, but why does it matter? What is it, what is it about it that really matters to me? How can I say something useful and intelligent and not let LSE, know, uh, LSE students of today know that not all journalists are stupid? Um, so I thought long and hard. My daughter helped me out with that little drawing. And um, it's such a broad concept. It can be really difficult to drill it down to specifics in argument. Um, yes, I love opera and I, I hate Lady Gaga um, um, I love film and I don't, you know it's, you can get bogged down in that kind of conversation but actually it's, it's a deeper idea than that really and, and, and I suppose that it's uh, in its broadest sense it provides a rough template for how we create as you quite rightly said I mean our sense of identity so culture is at the root of that Stuart Hall who I've interviewed a number of times eminent sociologist uh, not been well for a while, cultural studies professor, said you have to know how different you are from the other before you can construct an identity for yourself. In other words, culture matters to orient ourselves in a complicated world. It's our kind of anchor, if you like. And I think that's quite a useful thing to hold on to. In a journalistic sense, when I go out and do my job, Culture plays a, a primary role, I think, in how we construct meaning. 
and our sense of identity itself is conditioned by that sense of meaning. Of course, meaning doesn't just come from what we watch on TV and in film. It flows first from family relationships, like the ones I described there, and then through school. Uh, but our interaction with the wider world, to begin with, is very much conditioned by the media. And in Britain in particular, I think the BBC has helped to shape that sense of meaning, cultural meaning, through which we, in recent generations, have experienced and created our sense of cultural affinity. I mean, there is an argument that way back in the 1920s and 1910s, Britain was a very regional society. You were associated yourself with Yorkshire or Lancashire or the home counties uh, or Scotland or Lanarkshire, but you didn't think yourself as British so much. Obviously, when you went off and, and fought campaigns, you were in the British Army, but at home, people thought of themselves in their locality, and the BBC helped reshape that sense of meaning very much, because suddenly it reached out, obviously quite London-centric, to kind of create a new sense of what um, British culture was about. I don't think that's underlined and defined for all time, but the BBC has helped to create that. Now, if you accept that, what do you have to what you have to think is that how we represent people and their ideas through the media has a dramatic impact on culture and has done for the last um, 80 years. And, and personally, I think, possibly because of my LSE education, but also because of my own mixed cultural heritage, I think journalists have to report very responsibly in that area and be cognizant of culture when they're reporting. Otherwise they can make a mess of things. Um, so to understand the meaning of things requires a, a grasp not just of political and economic frameworks, for all of you political and economic scientists here, but cultural uh, frameworks too. And we, we ignore those cultural frameworks, I think, at our peril. Uh, I think increasingly, you know, in a professional world, in a world where we're driven by specialism from the age of almost about seven or eight now in British schools, you're forced to specialise for your GCSEs and then your A-levels and then your degree, you, I think, can see a sense of strong subcultures in a professional sense uh, emerging. So you have these kind of strong transnational subcultures, you know, in journalism, academic world, bankers. Um, I'll return to this in a, in a while, but, you know, just as a broad concept, this idea that specialism is leading to other cultures, subcultures, which create conflicts. And it's obvious that these groups, who could often operate in transnational silos, if you like, cultural silos, have a real impact on local realities. So bankers in Australia, in Hong Kong, in the United Kingdom, in Germany, in America, thinking in a cultural sense on the same plane, have an impact in their work on shaping local realities without reference to those local cultures. Um, which is a pretty big idea, but actually a pretty fundamental one when we're looking at you know, the sort of crisis, economic crisis we're trying to resolve now and the remedies to that. Now, in societies like Britain and America and, um, and increasingly other European societies where international migration is constantly challenging uh, cultural boundaries, uh, and as that sense of belonging is always in flux. Culture, it's really important to understand uh, this idea of culture. 
Um, in multicultural communities, it's often a sense of identity that's the first thing to be questioned and fragment, and with this a sense of belonging. Uh, in places like London, for example, I don't mean here in central London, but you know, in Barking and Dagenham or in Croydon or in uh, the outer areas of London, where identity is really fluid, can be really fluid, wrestling with difference can create a sense of cultural dissonance and, and, and alienation. And all of that, of course, leads to potential for conflict. The societies in cultural tradition and uh, cultural transition, I think, are bound to suffer instability. So cultures where there's a heavy influx of people, people therefore question identity, leads to um, instability. I think that's probably why you know lots of multiculturalists uh, think of uh, uh, a cultural synthesis, if you like, as the holy grail. They haven't reached it yet. They may never reach it. Um, but in that synthesis, they believe, lies that remedy for the potential for conflict. And that's, coming back to the journalism, is why representation and portrayal are such key issues for journalists and issues that we need to be fair about. Uh, getting the balance right helps us guard against these cultural cleavages that emerge and I think unwittingly often foster conflict. I, back in 1985, when I was still a student here, um, just started my PhD here, um, there I got caught up in the Broadwater Farm riots. And I remember the Tottenham community at the time, Broadwater Farm is a, a, a was a very, very um, poor estate in the north of London. If you recall, if any of you were here last August and the riots in Tottenham, uh, not far from where those riots took place. Um, and the Tottenham community at the time felt isolated, misrepresented, misunderstood by the mainstream media. And I think, actually, I felt very uncomfortable at the time. It was one of the reasons that I ended up becoming a journalist, because I felt, you know, if I was going to make my LSE education worthwhile, I would have to deploy it in trying to help others understand these cultural differences, because you could see in that moment how these cultural differences could lead to cultural cleavages, could lead to conflict. And rather than being in mediation and conflict like Mark Hoffman is, I thought I'd become a journalist and do that kind of work in that field. Um, I believe then, and, and I still believe, that helping the audience identify respect, to help them negotiate their attitude towards cultural um, difference, encourages a search for, if you like, cultural synthesis. A society at ease with itself can only emerge from shared meaning. Now, from right at the very start of my career in journalism, it became obvious that what I'd learned as a child, instinctively, would be quite useful professionally. Um, you know, trying to report on other people's worlds requires the journalist to try and imagine how those worlds are seen by those people. And culture, ultimately, is one of those prisms through which we interpret the relationships in the modern world. So cultural awareness should be a cornerstone of journalistic practice. And the best journalists, I would say, wouldn't understand the nuances of culture. Uh, right from the start of my career, I was pitched into one of the, 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 the if you like, the major events of the 20th century where um, 
Berlin Wall crumbled and uh, the tumult of global triumphalism meant that the victory had, uh, the, there was the victory of Western culture. I don't actually believe that, but that's what they thought at the time. Um, and reporting on the fall of the Berlin Wall again reminded me that you don't always see the world in the same way as other people. And those East Germans weren't all clamouring to be across the other side of the wall. Um, some of them were very fearful about what the change in the borders would actually mean for themselves and their cultural experience. Uh, and it was very clear that across Europe, many people felt that too. You know, it was clear that cultural affinities would quickly reassert themselves. And in that sort of multipolar world, culture would become very important. Um, not everyone was enamoured with that doctrine of liberalism. Um, and the, nowhere was that clearer than in the Balkans. I did a programme in 1990 um, called New Nations Old Hatreds on the prospective breakup of Yugoslavia, where it was clear that the rise of culture and the reassertion of culture created real problems. In fact, we, we, did, we did this program, we invited Sir Ralph Darendorf, who's a former director of the school, to sit on a panel, a televised panel, um, on the opposite side of the bench to Enoch Powell, who uh, was a politician in Britain who created great controversy back in the late 1960s for his views on race in particular. Um, and I, I remember having a private lunch with Enoch Powell, and he said to me, you know, this problem in Yugoslavia is going to end in conflict. This reassertion of culture is going to end in conflict. It's going to be brutal. In, in effect, he, he predicted Shrekmanitsha. In, in effect, he said, watch out. If you don't get a grip on culture, you don't understand it, you don't negotiate, you will end up with conflict and problems. And I think he was probably right in that circumstance. I mean, for me, the, uh, the conversation with Powell was a very powerful lesson to a as a young journalist, not just to uh, listen hard, but you know, prejudge less. Um, and the lesson from the Balkans for me was that minority cultures had to um, be respected. They couldn't be ignored just because they were inconvenient. You had to reckon with them. But the cultural prism was critical. Understanding the, how important culture was was absolutely critical. Now, Britain isn't uh, the Balkans by any stretch of the imagination today, but there are, in you know, countries like Britain, which, is, which are multicultural, even aspire to be multicultural, um, but at the same time as aspiring to it, sometimes I like to bury the idea of difference, because it's sometimes inconvenient. Uh, it's like an inconvenient truth, as someone else has said. Uh, in fact, right at the moment, I'm reporting on a story where a local authority in East London is proposing to close down an independent Islamic school because they say they don't want an Islamic school in their local authority because it doesn't meet their idea of, uh, of inclusion, cultural inclusion. Well, there's a recipe for conflict right there and unfortunately the local authority is burying its head in the sand because it has to wrestle with that idea of conflict and how they're going to uh, of, of culture and how they're going to negotiate with it. Uh, in fact, the Tavistock Institute um, report last year talking about the government's prevent program, anti-terrorism program, post 7-7 bombings in London, said that 
the central issues remain, this is just September last year, central issues remain for many of those young Muslims in London is their sense of cultural isolation, their cultural misunderstanding, their cultural vilification, and that provides the spark for radicalization and their attraction to Islamic <coughs> extremism. Whether that's right or wrong, the point is, is what's being identified are the cultural aspects of that. Um, and clearly that was one thing that the, the liberals who were so cock-a-hoop in 1989 failed to miss too, that as well as a culture reasserting itself, religion was going to reassert itself, and they, and they missed it. And I got a very early idea of that when I made a film called, we called it Trouble at the Mosque, a bit tongue-in-cheek. But it was about um, the lack of internal and external regulation in Britain's mosques back in the early uh, noughties. And the journey on that film took me into undercover into Finsbury Park Mosque, where Abu Hamza was. Uh, and I, what shook me about that was that clearly lots of these mosques were acting as cultural islands in a multicultural society. But when people like Abu Hamza took over the mosque, there were very few people outside of his own faith who were prepared to criticize him. And those who were criticizing from within the faith were ostracized. And the authorities, when they had a chance to intervene, failed to intervene. And it's my firm belief, and I, I, I'm, there's no secret here, because I talked to senior police officers at the time, and I said, you're making a big mistake by misunderstanding the culture that this person is asserting. And by missing that, you are creating a real situation for us to deal with as we move forward. There was real cultural dissonance, I think, within the authorities, and as a consequence, those terror networks that ended in 7-7 were not checked for at least four or five years. I think the police have recognised that after the event. What else would they do? But at the time, they failed to distinguish between the sort of cultural specificities and outright criminality, frankly. Uh, and it led to operational paralysis. It's a clear example of why it matters to understand culture to reckon with it and through understand culture find your remedy it was clear failing to reckon with it created these cultural cleavages which I think we're still trying to disassemble the case in East London with the Islamic independent school is still part of that same disassembling that we're having to do um, I know we want to have question and answer, so I won't go on for too much longer, but there's a couple of other thoughts that I do have. Um, I mentioned that in 1985, I was in, somehow accidentally got involved in this massive riot that was going on, and uh, it led me into journalism. And then, 20 years later almost, the man who had been vilified as the responsible person for murdering the police officer who died there came out of prison. I'd visited him in prison over the previous few years and we decided to make a film about um, his experience and the experience of the police service in dealing with that situation. And what I learned on that journey making that film was that those cultural dissonances which started in 1985 simply had not dissipated 20 years later. 
uh, and that the root of that dissonance came from the misunderstanding of the cultural context and the way in which that misunderstanding had been presented in the media. Uh, and I know because after the film went out, a lot of police officers came up to me and said, you know, I never realised that that's what that community felt. And likewise, members of the Tottenham black community said to me, you know, I never realised that police officers felt like that. There'd been this dissonance and it had taken 20 years and a BBC film to try and heal some of that. Um, it would be much better, of course, if we'd done it much earlier. But it was an example to me of something I see all the time, actually, which is institutional culture, where people get in their silos. I talked earlier about the transnational culture of bankers or journalists or uh, uh, other professionals that cross international boundaries. That institutional culture is another form of culture which, if we let it get too strong and too firm, can create new problems for us in driving, as Popper asked for, towards an op keeping the society open. You know, if you take a sort of administrative culture, we've had plenty of examples in the last year or so of, of Parliament being in a silo. Um, the expenses scandal is a symptom of that being in a silo. Um, not just national government, national politicians, local governments too. Uh, quite often there's a, a blame culture and then that administrative culture to try and avoid taking blame for something, they'd rather not do anything. And it's a danger. It's a danger for the open society. If we can't challenge those things, how do we preserve that open society? Well, frankly, if we don't challenge it, we don't. Um, and of course, along with the institutional culture, if we're talking about political institutions and the administrative culture, if we're talking about the administration of government, there's that corporate culture. I'm just throwing these things out there because I think these are elements of transnational culture which we have to wrestle with, as well as those issues of, uh, of culture that I alluded to with the sense of our cultural heritage. So, you know, when we've watched the meltdown in the global financial markets, we've seen that the culture of the financial markets, often driven by the notion that greed is good, which circulates then beyond national boundaries, what happens when that becomes a silo culture where nobody's prepared to challenge it? In actual fact, it gets to the point where other people are quoting that culture as an, as an excuse for their own behaviour. We need more money, as says MPX, because if I was working in the banking sector, I'd earn a lot more money. So the culture takes hold. If we don't challenge it, it creates conflict. I'll finish my observations talking about media culture. Um, it's the one professional group, as I've alluded to, that I think has a major impact on our conception of culture and identity, almost more than any others. Um, and of course, just across the road from here, the Levinson Inquiry has been asking lots of tough questions about that media culture that's evolved. Uh, the hacking scandal is just one example, I think, of where you know, professionals begin to believe they are subject to different norms of behaviour which begin to justify any course of action 
by their rules and not by the accepted norms of society. So in the silo culture of an organisation like News International and others, they're not alone, the means justified the ends. You know, the titillation, if you like, of their audience became paramount and they reinterpreted the public interest as something that the public would be interested in. Well, that's a very dangerous notion if that roots down in culture, that actually the public interest is what the public will be interested in. So, aided and abetted by their corporate culture, they sort of indulged in ever more intrusive methods and the sort of the national sport became schadenfreude, as the Germans would say, taking pleasure in other people's misfortune. So, does culture matter? I think you know my answer. Um, we need to understand culture to explain the complexity of relationships in the modern world. If we fail to use culture as a means to understand the world, we will fail to guard against permanent cultural cleavages, some of which I've alluded to, that can and will arise out of cultural fragmentation. And there's always a danger in multicultural societies of cultural fragmentation. Who would want to be the unwitting harbinger of new sources of conflict? Certainly not the LSE graduate. We're all for the open society and a peaceful world, of course. Without negotiation with those cultural conflicts, it will be more difficult, even impossible, to reach common ground, uh, mutual respect and acceptance. Uh, and I think, you know, I think you alluded to it very well, actually, about expanding your imagination. I mean, expanding your imagination of who we are shouldn't present you with conflict. It should prevent you with a better sense of trust and understanding. And I think the critical thinking traditions, which Mark introduced me to about 30 years ago, uh, in his Concepts and Methods lectures, those traditions fostered here at the LSC uh, have to continue to help us negotiate all that dissonance between life's many cultural boundaries. Thank you for listening. Okay, <clears throat> so uh, we had um, three fantastic uh, 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 presentations, cut to takes on the discussion of culture matter. Uh, touching on culture itself in terms of uh, culture is performative, culture is uh, constitutive in terms of existential. Um, uh, a really fascinating uh, insight in terms of the, how culture gets constructed both by ourselves, but also importantly how culture gets projected onto us and the implications of that, uh, and, and particularly uh, the role that the media can play in that. Um, and then really fascinating insights, I think, into um, uh, the processes of self-estrangement that we all kind of go through and the extent to which that process of self-estrangement is, a, is a, a necessary component of kind of destabilizing who we think we are so that we actually come to have a sense of who we are uh, and in that process of having a sense of who we are and have a sense of how it is that we um, interact and, uh, with others and, and you know, that, the, the final point with regard to uh, what Kurt was touching on in terms of how it is that we, um, how it is that we navigate um, difference uh, without recourse to uh, forms of um, 
uh, violence. So we have about uh, 20, 25 minutes for some uh, questions and answers uh, from you directed to uh, the panel. So I'll open the floor up to questions and comments. Um, I have a question for Mr. Kurt. I don't want to you um, I am uh, interested in a career in media, and it sort of comes from um, a lot of searching. I'm an older MSc student. Um, <coughs> excuse me, I've worked in international development abroad and have found that communications are very powerful, and I'm from the United States, and am pretty disappointed in the communications that we have. And, and I think it's, um, especially in the news outlets, I mean, entertainment and news have become the same thing. And so in my anger, I found, well, I suppose maybe joining them from the inside and trying to make a change on the inside might be a good way to, to pursue that. Um, I'm really looking for any kind of maybe career advice or your thoughts on that. How would one kind of start in that? And do you need a PhD? Um, you know, <laughs> <laughs> well, the last thing you need is a PhD to be a PhD. <coughs> but it's an interesting exercise to do a PhD if you're interested in doing it. And it's a big personal challenge. And it gives you intellectual resilience uh, when you navigate the world beyond the LSE or you, you do that PhD. I mean, I think when I... I remember having this conversation with Mark about 30 years ago. He said, you must be starting a man to leave the MSE and become a journalist. What do you want to do that for? And actually, it was something very deep in me. Um, it sounds like you've got that kind of deep sense that you want to make that contribution in a field where you believe it has a direct impact. Well, you, the reality is you do. You go into people's homes. I mean, I, I travel around London every day. And I get stopped at least two dozen times a day and say, I saw that thing you did last week. Yeah, that was good. But this is the story you really should be doing. You know, so you, you're engaging, hopefully, with people. Um, I think you're a better journalist if you do engage with people, clearly. Um, I think that to answer your question in terms of career advice, you've got to follow your own instincts. If it's something where you feel you can make a contribution, and you can use your training, your intellectual training, for good purpose. Why not? Why not indeed? In fact, as you've worked overseas in international development, there's lots of work to be done. And it's not just in that narrow confine of news. There are all sorts of other media uh, platforms now. And in the next 10 years, who knows what those media platforms are going to offer you as an opportunity to express the and challenge the ways in which other people perhaps might might pursue the world. Um, so I would say go for it. You know, don't worry about um, what people think the media is. Um, it's ever evolving, and it's for you to go in and shape. You can always change your mind because you go and become a journalist. Doesn't you have to be a journalist to the day you drop. You know, um, plenty of people don't. They end up doing something entirely different. Lots of people stay in BBC, for example, for 10 or 15 years, and then they decide they've got to actually earn a proper living and go and work for PR. <laughs> it wasn't my idea of fun, but there you go. So the second example, so uh, yes, you do yeah. No, sorry, behind you first, then, okay, behind you, and then you get front, so we'll take this here again. Um, my question is open to any of the three panelists. Um, you talked about how culture matters. Um, I want to know uh, how much does culture matter or how much does it hold up in, uh, in a globalized world. And it's quite a coincidence that uh, I just had a lecture on um, 
on uh, that hypothesized on how uh, multiculturalism has failed, uh, especially when it has blurred the notion of a national identity, trans transnational identity, which we just talked about, and how it has led to social breakdown, ethnic tension, and growth of extremism and terrorism. So it actually comes straight from my lecture. So, yeah. The question is behind her. Yeah. Um, this question is for Kurt, but um, for anyone else who wants to comment as well. Um, what would you say uh, to those who argue that the uh, BBC is a silo, a cultural silo, and what potential conflicts and why it's a silo? Okay. And take this one down here. Yeah, I have a question. It's really interesting to understand uh, different aspects of culture that influence a personal identity. And I sort of went through a similar uh, you know, experience sort of clinging on to my culture and then opening up to different ideas. But more importantly, I sort of discovered that sometimes there's an absence of culture in terms of mindset, that we're trying to understand the people from different parts of the world with different kinds of culture, different um, influences on their way of thinking, actually have similar ideas and similar, um, I don't know, thoughts. And I just sort of wanted to get everybody's um, maybe perspective I'm trying to understand when does culture not matter, as opposed to I, I know culture matters on a on a larger perspective. It's important, and everybody knows that you know it makes a difference. But is there <coughs> a specific situation where you might actually feel culture is not really as important as other things like uh, what people actually believe in? <coughs> okay, so uh, uh, when does it not matter? Uh, how does it matter in a globalized world, uh, and is the BBC itself sort of institutionalized culture? So it's, we'll start over here, <coughs> work our way around. To, to get to your question, when culture doesn't matter, I think that's a really important question, in that at the end of the day, to use a cliche, um, after all cultural nuances are negotiated, uh, we are all fundamentally people. Uh, we are fundamentally human. And when you interact with people, after you get across this cultural dressing, you realize, like you rightfully said, most people have the same concerns about a job, about security, about having a future. So, so yes, there, there are times when uh, you need to go beyond culture. But I don't think that's, that culture doesn't matter more than culture has its place. And sometimes you just need to go beyond that. Yeah, I just wanted to like, ask the same question that I think it's not so much as a question of when culture stops mattering, but what sort of culture matters. So perhaps, like, like I said, like, perhaps we start with a very nationalistic or a very like, uh, nation-based perspective of culture, but then it evolves into something bigger. That doesn't prevent it in any way from being culture. It's just a different sort of culture, which is more inclusive and based on your experience. So. Uh, I think culture, if you try to think of it methodologically, as a useful tool to understand the world, it always matters. I don't think as a journalist, for example, I can go into any situation and not have some cultural nuance there that I need to be sensitive to. But today I interviewed a, um, a mother whose son had been sent to jail for rioting got a really stiff sentence, 14 months for stealing something worth 150 pounds. And there was a sort of subcultural conversation going on with her. I couldn't ignore it. How important it was in terms of me reporting the story, it wasn't the first thing, 
because I was more interested in um, taking on point on on her point about the sentencing just being too long. That's about criminal justice. But actually, the cultural context for that conversation was really important. As it happened, she was uh, mixed heritage herself. Her son was black. He'd had lots of problems with the police. Goes to my point about institutional culture. So once you want to try and understand what's going on, and you break it down, culture becomes a really important part of the method for doing that. Now, if I was a politician, I would argue that the remedy to her particular problem also has to involve sensitivity towards culture. Um, so that's a, I mean, I'm not saying culture always matters, you know, um, of course it can't always matter, but in terms of explaining big <coughs> questions, big issues in society, yes, I think it probably always does matter. Uh, multiculturalism, um, globalism, does it attack national culture? Well, actually, I think the lesson of, of 1989 was that actually it doesn't matter what kind of global culture you have or, you know, um, in the bipolar world, you know, communism and whatever, and you can say, oh, it's all gone now, culture doesn't matter anymore, or the liberals say, oh, it doesn't matter, you know, we're all, we're all, we're all friends together. Um, actually, that was hogwash. Culture mattered intensely to people, and they very fiercely um, uh, defend their culture, whatever that culture might be, and whatever, however wide the parameters of that culture are, they really defend it. They defend it to the death in the Balkans. Um, they defended it in the death to the death in all sorts of other parts of the world. So I don't think you can say that some kind of globalism idea has subverted um, the tendency to have local, strong uh, sense of local culture. BBC, a cultural silent, absolutely. The BBC is dominated, not my words, the former D director general of the BBC, by white middle class men. And inevitably, white middle class men of a certain age do not see the world in the same way as white middle class women, or white working class women, or uh, black men or black women. Inevitably, that becomes a bit of a silent. Now, that doesn't mean all white men, middle aged men, think in the same way. But there is a danger if you're not, don't do the critical thinking, that it can easily become a silo, become a dominant and presumed way of seeing the world. And uh, we have to resist that and work against it. I think the BBC does actually quite a good job of doing that. Not necessarily on, its, on every single programme, but across the piece. Uh, to answer your question on the failure of multiculturalism, this is a, a rhetoric that I've taken a lot of offence to, because one need to ask, we need to ask ourselves, is there a failure of multiculturalism or is it just a political rhetoric? The last time I checked, the whites and the blacks and the Asians weren't mining the battle hatches and, you know, mining forts in London. Uh, people were still eating kebabs and going to Chinese New Year. So you have to ask yourself, is this rhetoric about the failure of multiculturalism anything more than political? And to add my own personal experience, I come from an island that, is, that makes London look monolithic. It's so multiculturalism. There are Africans, Indians, Chinese, Syrians, Christians, Muslims, Lebanese, all sorts of people, and we're not at each other's throats. Same thing for the vast majority of the world, that people are just trying to survive. Yes, there are regions that have cultural conflict, but these are in the vast minority. They may make the news because they're 
you know, exciting or tragic to read about. But I think, <coughs> sorry, I think one needs to be really careful when talking about debt of multiculturalism and not fall prey to this political rhetoric that has been sold that, you know, multiculturalism is dead. One just has to walk down London to see that that's not actually true. <coughs> Do you have questions? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's a question I was originally thinking to ask to Kurt, but actually the you've made, I think, actually gives a good context for it. I don't think multiculturalism is dead necessarily, but my personal view is that the new Labour government, particularly the 1990s and noughties, fails to get multiculturalism right for London and for the UK, and failed to define what that was going to mean. So I don't know what people think about that. I mean, it was originally a question directed to the Kurt, but it could be for them for all, particularly okay. <coughs> in that last comment. Okay, there's a question back there. Yeah, you. Okay, yeah. Uh, yeah, hi. Um, I'm a management student here at the LSC, so my question goes uh, kind of into the economic management side. Uh, what's the impact of culture on the bottom line? Um, where's the link between uh, well, diversity, multiculturalism, and performance? You want to start with the bottom line culture? <laughs> <laughs> we hinted at various points you were talking about it in your comments. Well, I mean, I, I, the bottom line is one for consultants. I'm more investment banking, so, <laughs> um, so I, mean, I wouldn't quite have a very definite answer for you. But I mean, I, I think it's pretty evident for anyone who is working. If, you, for example, if you if you have an industry and you're so spread out and you're outsourcing brutally all across the world, you need to have that sort of culture sensitivity pretty much everywhere because you need to know what's happening where and how you're going to be dealing with that. And I think to have, for example, if you have transnational companies, they have a collective identity which is so much more above a national identity. For uh, and I think yeah, that's if that answers your question. Uh, from September, I'll be working for Barclays Bank in HR, and I can tell you that culture has a big impact on the bottom line. In that Barclays, being such a massive bank, actually has a department called Global Diversity and Inclusiveness. And the point of these departments is that they're in most big transnational companies. And culture plays a huge impact on the bottom line because when one is attracting talented people, usually they come from many different backgrounds. Talent isn't uh, pigeonholed into one particular culture. So when the ethos of your company is to attract the best, then you need to make the best feel comfortable in your in your company, and thus your bottom line. <clears throat> so a picture back to you. So does it matter in the bottom line? How does it matter from your point of view? My point of view. Yeah. Uh, well, you can say. I quite like the, the answers so far. Uh, we can discuss a bit. <laughs> well, they fundamentally, don't. I mean, what do you? If you're a business person, what are you trying to do? You're trying to provide goods and services to the market. Now, the market isn't filled up with automatons, it's filled up with people. If you want to penetrate more markets, you need to understand those people. And culture is an important part of, um, of, of, of selling your goods and services to those people. The more you sell, the more money you make, you know, the better your bottom line. So I think from a simple marketing point of view, it must be the case that cultural awareness and understanding helps the bottom line, notwithstanding what, what you've just said about the internal politics of big global companies. 
that want to recruit the best talent. Well, if they want to come and recruit the best talent from the LSE, they better well have a bloody good idea of what culture is about because you're going to be taking people from so many different backgrounds. If you don't deal with that, you're not going to extract the maximum advantage out of those talented people, are you? Now, multiculture, multiculturalism, what does it mean? I've never quite sure what it means, to be honest. I think it's more of an ambition than an existing kind of state of nirvana. Um, I, I think I'm, I'm inclined to agree with you in some respects that back in the late 90s and early noughties, the government got it wrong. They got it wrong because they didn't know what they were talking about, more often than not. But for example, when I did the film Trouble at the Mosque, started it in 1998, finished in 2001, um, just after the September 11th um, um, tragedy. What was clear to me is that you talk to lots of people in the police service, or in government, or in the security services, they had no clue what, you know, multiculturalism meant. They had no idea that actually they could go and challenge Abu Hamza, who was showing snuff videos to 13-year-olds. You know, they, they lost, lost a sense of what it actually meant. Um, so multiculturalism, is it dead? Well, I'm not sure it was ever really alive in the way that lots of people like to present it, which was a sort of, there's a famous song, wasn't there, in the 1960s, I'm trying to remember the words to it now. I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> but it's something like, um, the world's a melting pot and, you know, we'll all be brown people one day. And as a six-year-old, listening to that, I found that really a wonderful idea because that meant everyone would look like me in the end. But actually, it, it, it just it doesn't work like that, does it? The world is a very complicated place. The issue is negotiating between those different cultures so that we, we don't have to be frightened of difference. I think in the 70s and 80s, people strove for this idea that multiculturalism meant there would be no differences anymore, we'd all be the same. Well, arrant nonsense. The issue really is how we negotiate those differences and acclimatise and come comfortable. Like we did at the dinner table when I was a six and seven year old, and my mother said, we didn't have bananas. And my father said, you start raving mad. We didn't have an empire, you know. But we learned to negotiate that tension between those cultures. That, in a sense, was a form of multiculturalism, but, um, um, <clears throat> and, uh, because of time, so we're, we're going to need to draw things to a close. Uh, so, uh, first of all, I want to thank our, our three speakers uh, for fascinating talks. Mm -hmm.